Well, it is my great privilege to introduce our speaker today, and he will not be a stranger to some of you. Dr. Joe Graham will be sharing. He's continuing our series entitled Brave. Uh, Dr. Graham has been a professor at Grace in the Behavioral Science Department since 2011. Prior to that, he had a very extensive counseling ministry here in the Warsaw area. Um, Joe has a wonderful wife named Dee Dee, and he also has three kids, a daughter, two sons. She's in college. They're in high school. I know he's very proud of them and loves them dearly. He's quite well-educated, um, undergrad degree from Grace, master's degree from Colorado Christian University, and a doctor of psychology degree from Adler School of Theology. So yeah, he knows his stuff. More than that, he's a man of God. I told the first service, I got to say it again, <laughs> told the first service the most important, we both played a little basketball. You know, I'm the little guy up here on the stage today. But we both played a little basketball. I said, Joe, can you still dunk? He goes, when I turned 47, that was kind of the cutoff point. And I told him that I still dunk. I'm talking about a basketball, <laughs> not donuts. I'm talking about basketball. I said, Joe, I still dunk. He goes, yeah. I go, yeah, I have my, uh, my basket in my driveway at eight feet for my grandkids. <laughs> I can do reverse slams. I can just do all kinds of awesome things. So anyway... You're in for a treat. You're in for a blessing this morning. Let's give a wonderful Mission Point welcome to Dr. Joe Graham. Thanks. Thanks I'm going to say two things before I start. First, I've got to get back in the gym because I was just standing on that little ramp and my calves were starting to cramp up from, you know. Secondly, if I have problems with my voice, you can blame it on the worship team, right? The, the songs, I knew I shouldn't be singing because I've got a cold but the songs they're singing, those are words you can't leave up on the screen, right? You've got to get those words out. Those are awesome songs. Thanks to the worship team for that. So uh, Kondo asked me to speak uh, because he kind of went on the topic of fear, and then he went on the topic of anxiety. And today, uh, I want to talk uh, about what should the church's response be when someone has those things? Like, t by the way... Uh, Last week, I sat uh, right below the camera there, and Kondo said, who's already thought of anxiety, anxious thoughts today? And my hand was high because I was thinking about speaking today, right? I was already feeling that little bit, uh, but man, what a blessing to have a pastor that says the things Kondo said last week about anxiety. I've never heard it taught that way. It was a wonderful and, and loving and the idea that it's okay for us to say, look, i got a plan. Uh, but when I overdo it, that's when I can get myself into trouble. And today we want to talk about uh, the next phase of that. And the next phase of that is what happens when someone has that anxiety or some other problem and they can't pray it away. They can't faith it away. They can't try harder and make those feelings go away because... The Bible says be anxious for nothing, so if I'm not uh, doing that, I must have something wrong with me. And this is important to the church. And the reason I think this is important to the church is because 16 million people in the United States 
are suffering from anxiety disorders. Now, the difference between having anxiety, like I'm nervous about speaking, and having an anxiety disorder is, is it means it gets in the way of your functioning. 16 million. I may actually may have that wrong. I think it might be higher than that. It's 16% of our population. I think it's 20 million, 16%. 40 million, 16%. I should have looked at my notes. 16% on top of that, almost 7% of the people in the United States have had a de major depressive episode in the last year. So I'm no math major, but 16 and 7 is pretty close to 25. That means one in every four per people that you walk by every day is likely to be dealing with one of those two things. We're not talking about bipolar disorder. We're not talking about schizophrenia. We're not talking about ADHD. We're leaving all those out of our statistics. And what we're saying is pay attention. And what those 25% of people are saying to us is, church, how will you love me? And I, and I contend that sometimes, not necessarily this church, but the church has not done the greatest job of knowing and loving people who struggle with mental illness. And we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about what is it that might be causing that. And so, as my way of preparing, I sent out texts to all of my pastor friends and all of my Christian counselor friends, and I said, if you had the opportunity to say, what do you wish the church knew about mental illness, what would you say? And first off, amazing people. I got long, long texts, and, and, and people were passionate about this, and this really lit something up in a lot of them. And I, I want to read one of those replies to you because it encompasses basically the main ideas of what everyone else was sharing. i got to put my glasses on. Sorry, I turned 40. Untrammeled vision before then. Here's the response. Uh, this is from Rich Yager, who's a pastor in Goshen. I wish the church wouldn't put a stigma on those with some mental health issues and that we can't necessarily just pray those things away. I wish we also better understood the link between our physical health and our emotional health. Also, that if a person's going through some emotional pain or mental health, they are not alone, that the church has a responsibility to walk side by side with those people. That was an awesome response, and that's about what we're going to hear now, right? We're going to talk about those three things. The first thing that, that we want to talk about is the stigma of, of mental health uh, and, and how the church has maybe not responded the best to that. And we're going to talk about it in the context of the story of Job. And, and so we're going to go through the story of Job, and we're going to build up to it, and we're going to try to create some cognitive dissonance for you. Now, for those of you who are not into psychology, cognitive dissonance means you have competing thoughts in your head. And that's what I'm going for when we get to the kind of middle part of Job, and then we're going to look at Job's friends. And what we're just going to say today, church, is, is let's not be Job's friends to the people in our lives that, that struggle with mental illness. And then after we deal with that, uh, we're going to talk about mental illness and how complex it is. Part of the thing that, that I want to get across today is the idea that we don't understand this, but we still want answers. And so when we want answers, we pursue answers, whether they're going to be right or not. And sometimes with a good heart, we actually can be doing tons of damage to people uh, unintentionally. And then finally, we want to talk about what should, should our response be as a church? How should we be reacting uh, and loving uh, people in our lives who struggle with mental illness.
So as we go through that process, uh, I want to talk about uh, a, a TED Talk. Any, any TED Talk fans here? Yeah, I, I, again, I'm a nerd, right? I love watching TED Talks. I've learned so much, and it's like 20 minutes. Oh, look, I'm a smarter person. It's good. I watched a TED Talk uh, that was recommended to me called The Danger of a Single Story. I would genuinely encourage you to go home today and watch The Danger of a Single Story. Now, I know I'm going to mess her name up, uh, but I'm going to try it anyway. It's Chimananda uh, Adiche. That's her name. And her talk, A Danger of a Single Story, is basically this. She's from Africa. And being from Africa, uh, she learned certain things about the world. Not all of them were true. For instance, she talks about a boy that was a servant in their home and how her parents were always saying, eat all your food. Don't you know this boy doesn't have food? And they were giving their clothes and saying, you know, don't hold on to your stuff because don't you know they don't have anything? So her single story of the young man who came to work at her house was, this is just a poor boy. But then she and her family went to visit his family. And when they got there, she saw that the family was incredibly artistic and good at, ma at making beautiful things and selling them so that their family could have some money. She saw the way their family interacted. And now she didn't have a single story of this young man as just a poor kid. She now knew of him as a person. And when we talk about the danger of a single story, that happens to us as a church when it comes to mental illness. And I want to challenge us today to think through what is your single story? And your single story can be driven by something your parents told you. It can be driven by the thought that, that, well, medication is bad for people. Why? Well, because my dad said that or my mom said that or someone else said that. And I, I just a forewarning that I'm going to talk about medication today. And generally when I do that, someone gets upset. It's okay. You can disagree with me. I'll be here afterwards. Come and talk to me. I'm not saying I have the answers, but I do want to talk to the church about the way that we address that when we go today. So that you've been warned, and we're going to talk about meds today, right? But as we think about a single story, I want to share three people in my life who experienced an unhealthy single story from me. The first one is a tech worker who was working at KCH. So um, I had had a fever for a month, and I'm a little fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing, but that's bad, Right? You have a fever for a month, you need to go to the doctor. I went to the doctor. The doctor says, I don't know what's going on. Let's put you in the MRI machine. Okay. So I'm like, okay, I'm all for it. So they put me in the MRI machine. Here's what they did. If you've ever been in, they lay you down, and then they put this mask over my face. And in that moment, and I saw the little tube they were about to put me in, I tried to break a very expensive machine. I want it out of there, and I want it out of there now. I didn't know what had happened. I couldn't understand. I've never felt that way before. But what I felt was powerful and it was true. And so the, 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 the nice lady had to send me upstairs. They gave me a pill that made me very happy. And then I went back downstairs. And then they, I was able to go in there. But you know, if I was that tech, I'd be going, what's wrong with this dude? Right? A month later, I go to the dentist. I'm having a root canal. I've heard about this dentist in Fort Wayne that he gives you six different kinds of medicine, and I'm against pain, so, you know, he's rubbing it on me, and he's putting it over my nose, and he's giving me shots. That's my kind of dentist, right? I like this guy. So I'm fine. I know it's not really going to hurt. He, whatever he's going to do, he lays me backwards, and he tries to, you know, how they don't want you to spit on him, so they put the thing over your mouth, and I punched him. Pah! 
He was 70. I know. It's terrible. Don't laugh. But I'm not a violent person. I've never been in a fist fight in my life. I would lose even though I'm a large human being. But I socked the poor dentist. So his single story is, here, I'm coming to work. It's a good day. A thousand bucks today for, okay, this guy's getting a root canal. That's good. Wham! That's his single story. And what's he thinking? This guy is losing it. Last story. My wife and I were traveling out of Fort Wayne, and so, you know, Fort Wayne's a smaller airport, and we're out. We have to walk out to the tarmac, you know, to, to get on the plane. And this is a month after I've punched the dentist, two months after I have tried to break the machine. And we walk up to the edge of the plane, and I decide, I don't think I want to get on there. That looks awfully small in there. I'm thinking, what is going on with me? And an entire plane of people is waiting. The stewardess is standing above the steps going, sir, are you getting in? Sir, are you getting in? And I'm going, just give me a minute, just give me a minute, just give me a minute. And you think, what is going on? So the single story of this entire plane of people, guy's a kook, can't get on the plane, right? The single story of the tech, the single story of the dentist about me had to do with what was going on with my own anxiety. You see, they didn't know my whole story. My whole story was four months before my wife and I had gone on a vacation to Denver, Colorado. And when we went to Denver... Uh, we met some friends, and our friends scheduled a whitewater rafting trip. Yes, this sounds great. Let's do this. Now, we weren't very smart because the first two days we tried to go, they wouldn't let us go because the river was too fast. Now, we should have taken note of that. The second thing we should have taken note of is when we were in the van on the way to the river, we signed a release that said, you might die. We signed it. We got in the boat. So the way it works is this is a class five. There's five classes of rapids. Slow is one. Five is you're going to die. Okay? But what they would do is they would pull you to the side of the, of the river before a class five, and they would say, this is what we need to do. We have to paddle this way and do this. And the, the, the guide says to me, Joe, you're on the front left. What we're going to do is we're going to go down this drop, and if you dig your paddle, we will turn around this giant rock that's 10 feet in the air, and then we'll go around and we'll go down. I'm like, yeah, I got this, right? I'm ready to go. Apparently, I'm not very good at paddling. So I'm digging, and we go straight out on top of the rock. Now, again, you don't have to know physics to know it's a rubber boat, and I'm a large human. So I flip out of the boat into the Class 5 rapid. And down the river I go. And here's the way it works, is you hold your breath until you feel air, and then you, and then you get pulled back under by the rapid. And I'm not, I'm joking, but it was, it was frightening, and I was not cool at all during this time. Right? I want to be a cool person, not cool. Thankfully, the company that had the raft also had a kayak with us, and he was really good on the kayak. So he comes rifling along next to me. And he's yelling at me, and I don't care what he's saying because I'm flipping out, right? And so he literally takes the paddle and smacks me on the head. Bap! He's trying to get me back into some sense of reality. He eventually gets me over to the side. We're in a class four rapid now where I'm holding on to a rock, and he's in the eddy behind the rock, and water is pushing over, and he says to me, don't put your feet down. 
Now, if you don't know, the Colorado River is rock on the bottom, and it's rocks that are jagged like this. But in that moment, I didn't have the tendency to listen to that man. And so I won't say what I said to him in church, but I basically said, no, thank you. And I put my feet down because I wanted out of that water. And when I put my feet down, the neoprene in my booty got sucked in between two rocks. And the water coming over the rock knocked me over. Remember what position I was in when I was with the tech getting ready to get put in the machine? Remember what position I was in with the dentist? Right? So my brain in those instances was telling me, you're going to die. Because that's just about what happened. I'll tell you the rest of the story because it's a great story. So the guy in the kayak who's in the eddy, I'm dying. I read about drowning later. And what happens when you're drowning is you fight like crazy. And then you're like, yeah, I guess I'm going to drown. And that's where I was. I was, I guess I'm going to drown. He comes around the rock in his kayak. He rolls it as hard as he can on top of me. Bam, slams me down, pops my foot out, saves my life. What a story, right? But I'm a psychologist. I know. Get back in the boat. I go through the rest of the class, five rapids the rest of the day. I'm like, okay, I'm good until I got to get in the MRI machine. Right? And so so the point is, is the MRI worker, the dentist, they all didn't know my story. Now it makes sense to you, right? Jeez, you almost died. You were drowning. You were laid backwards. Your brain is telling you don't do that. But understand, when we see people who are depressed or anxious every day and they do things that don't make sense to us, like they don't go to work or they, they, they avoid things that they should do, it doesn't make sense to us because we don't know their story. <clears throat> As a church, this is part of how we are to love. And we want to talk about that in the context of uh, Job, okay? And so I'm going to tell the story of Job a little faster to, uh, in this uh, hour. So first thing I want you to know is Job was blameless. He was so blameless that when his, he wanted to please God so much that he was worried his kids might do something to make God mad. So after every uh, party or whatever they would have, he'd go the next morning and give sacrifices for all of them, and he would, he would do whatever, to, and he pleased God. Wouldn't that be awesome if God said that about us, right? The verse that God, that God says is Job was blameless and upright in God's eyes. I want to be that. I really do. So God was bragging about Job, right? I get that as a parent, you know? If you want to hear about my kids, I'll be waiting outside, right? Uh, And I'll tell you all about how awesome they are, right? And God's looking down at Job and his son, and he's saying, look at this guy. Look how awesome he is. He's blameless, and he is upright, and he fears God, and he doesn't do any evil. And the response of the deceiver, who we think is, is Satan, is, okay, God, of course. Look at all you've given to Job. Job's got it all, right? He's got sheep. He's got lambs. He's got goats. He's got nice tents. You've given everything. Of course he's going to follow you. Bless him like crazy. God says, okay, so what do you think? And, and this is where Satan starts to talk trash to God, Right? He says, and I want to I say it correctly, he says, if you take that stuff away from him, he will curse you to your face. So Satan's like, okay, and again, I don't know why God buys into this, because God knows what's going on, but he does. Maybe it's so we could have the book of Job. So 
He cuts Satan loose, and Satan does it, right? And Satan wipes out everything he has, crops, animals, wealth, anything. And on, so he loses everything. On top of that, he wipes out his family except for his wife. Takes all of his children. Now, again, we read stuff like that and go, oh, that's terrible. Put yourself in their shoes. Job and his wife's shoes, put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you lost everything today? How would you feel if you lost one kid? Those of you who have lost kids, no. It's terrible. And he's lost it all. And Satan's expecting it to turn out bad. But interestingly, Job knew he didn't deserve God's blessings, so he didn't interpret it that way. Job knew he didn't deserve God's blessings, right? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So I want to talk about the word deserve there, right? Because it's a dangerous word. When we start to think we deserve stuff, it gets us in trouble. Right? I think I deserve good food. Right? I mean, oh, I've had a stressful day. I need something yummy or whatever. I think I deserve a good marriage. I think I deserve. When we think we're owed anything, we'll do bad things to get it. And it's interesting as we watch Job, how his friends are buying into this idea we deserve what we get. And I want to challenge that thought today. And what's nice is because Job didn't think he deserved the good stuff he had, when bad stuff came, he didn't say, I deserve that too. He said, God gives and God takes away and I'm okay. I don't know if I could do that. I genuinely don't know if I could do that. right? But it's his perspective was that God is faithful in prosperity and adversity. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a sense of right and wrong. I have a sense of fairness that's pretty strong. It's pretty much gotten me in trouble in every job I've ever had. When I think things aren't fair, I don't have a good filter, I say something, and then I get myself in trouble. But most of us have this idea that there's a certain way things are supposed to be. And one of the things that we've done as a church is we've said, I think that when I'm living a good life, a godly life, that I should also have blessings. And and I'm talking not just about financial, I'm talking about emotional blessings. That somehow I should feel better. And if I don't, then maybe I'm doing something wrong. Like it's not just the church. We turn on ourselves, don't we, when it comes to this stuff. But Job doesn't do it. He sticks. He keeps saying, look, I'm not going to turn on him. So Satan comes back to God and says, well, of course, he's still got his health. God says, go ahead. Right? Now, this is something I wouldn't want to happen, right? If Satan's going to unleash physical pain on me, you know that's going to be horrific. So whatever Job was experiencing, I don't think we can understand. It said head to toe sores. He had to be miserable. And so what's interesting is, is it still didn't work. It still didn't work. Job's wife, who is frustrated. Now, danger of a single story. If we just read that verse, we go, man, that woman, she's not great. She just lost her kids, people. Her husband is wrecked laying in front of her. He can't provide for her. He is in misery. And she says, curse God and die. That's easy to judge her until we hear her story and think, man, 
Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't wish I wouldn't, but man, with all that pain, would I do the same? And Job's response to her is, he replied, <clears throat> you are talking like a foolish woman. He's talking about moral foolishness there. He's not talking about foolishness. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. You see, Job realizes here he can't see the inner workings of heaven. He knows that he can't know what God's going to do, so he's not going to turn on God because of it. So our question that we want to begin to ask is where are we as a church with this? Can we recognize that we don't understand mental illness and treat it accordingly? Let's listen to Job. Now this is where it starts to get a little harder to deal with. So Job goes on now and he has what's called a lament, right? I want to make some points. One, Job was blameless. He had his life and his health wrecked and he did not turn on God. But listen to what he says. Three times, Job says, why did I not perish at birth? And die as I came out of the womb. What? He's a godly man. He didn't turn on God. He lived his life right, yet he still wishes he was never born. That creates what's called cognitive dissonance for me. I don't like that. I feel like if I pursue God and I live the right life, then at least emotionally I should be okay. That's not what I think he's saying. He says three times, asks the question three times, why am I still alive? That's depression. When we're asking that question, and believe me, he's not asking that question lightly. He's saying, why am I still alive? And that creates some problems sometimes for us as a church when we think he's godly, he's not turned on God, and he's still feeling those feelings. So, <clears throat> enter Job's friends. You know, I could see him on the ride over. Hey, let's go talk to Job. He's, not, you know, he's having a rough time. You know what? We should just make sure we straighten him out. Right? And so in comes friend one. And friend one must have gone to the Dale Carnegie class of confrontation because he comes in and he says to Job, uh, <clears throat> think how you have instructed many and how you have strengthened feeble hands. Look at what a good guy you are, Job. Your words have supported those who have stumbled. You have strengthened the faltering knees. I mean, here we go. He's laying it on thick. But now, trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. So, you've helped others. Now you are in trouble. Let's make a conclusion. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Here we go. As I have observed, those who plow evil uh, and those who sow trouble reap it. Friend one comes in and says, hey, you're a great guy, but obviously you're sinning. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this problem, right? You wouldn't be struggling. You wouldn't be wishing that you had never been born. Instead, you must have done something wrong. So friend two comes in and says the exact same thing. Friend three comes in, and in the NFL, we call this 15 yards for piling on. Friend three comes in and says the exact same thing. You must be doing something wrong because God 
wouldn't do this to you. Now, first off, we've got to ask ourselves, why would his friends do this? Now, I want to explain some psychology of it, uh, what I think, is we don't like not knowing the answer. You know what's interesting? Your brains are wired to fill in the, the gaps. Have you ever wondered what, how you can see a clear picture even though you're blinking all the time? Not possible. You're closing the window all the time, but you don't notice. You don't stop seeing. Why? Because your brain fills it in. You know what's really cool? Is I have a class that I teach, and we put on the screen uh, a black background with rain falling. And in the corner, we put a little white circle. And we just say, hey, we want you to stare at the rain for a little while. 100% of the students, their brain will fill in the white hole because it doesn't make sense to them. Your brain would do the same. Go home, you know, go on your computer and do any kind of visual illusion. Your, the visual illusions work because your brain wants to make sense of things. That's what Job's friends are doing. They're saying, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to make sense of it. So you must be sinning. This is called a syllogism. The syllogism goes like this. God sends bad things to bad people. You have bad things happening to you. You must be bad. Think about that. God sends bad things to bad people. You are anxious. You must be sinning. You are depressed. You must be sinning. Why? Because God wouldn't do that to someone else. This is called the theology of divine retribution, and it fuels the prosperity gospel. Because when I do good things, I get a Cadillac, baby. Right? And when I do bad things, then God's going to strike me with lightning or something like that. Now, sometimes this is true, isn't it? What did God do to Sodom? They shook their fist at God long enough. They refused to turn around, and God said, I've had enough. Right? This is also true in our own lives. There's a natural way that God set the world up to work. Right? I can be mad as I want at God that I have to take blood pressure medicine. But if I'd get in the gym and eat a few less calories, I wouldn't need it. So I can't be mad at God for that. It's the way he set the world up to work. Years ago, I had a client who was raging at God in front of me. And he was a good counselor. I said, well, why are you so angry at God? And she says... I can't believe that God let me get pregnant. I didn't really know what to say then because I think both of us knew how the whole pregnancy thing works and God really didn't have anything to do with participating in that. It was a natural consequence of her behavior. So there are natural consequences of our behavior. Sometimes God does get fed up, but we don't know. What's causing it? And so as a church, if we're just assuming that this person is sinning, we're assuming then we are not going to love the way we're called to love. So finally, the friends pile on one more time. And they say, you must have just turned your back on God. So they can't figure it out. They can't let it go. Their brains want to understand. So let's talk about the mystery of mental illness for just a little bit. You see, mental illness has a lot of complex causes. I have a friend. He's a godly man. He has a pretty tough wife to live with, to be honest. And he honors her. He goes to work. He struggles. 
he, sa- he told me, I have felt the cloud of sadness over my head since I was three years old. He had a great childhood. His parents were awesome. But he has been depressed for his whole life. And so the assumption we make is that he was born with chemistry in his body that leads him to feel depressed. By the way, if you doubt chemistry, right, just know if we gave everyone here adrenaline shot and said sit still, it would be a tough day. Right? As I age, this is the graph of my testosterone. Right? I'm decreasing as I get older. So now I'm watching comedies that I should be laughing. I'm crying. Ah, I can't stop myself from crying. Why not? Chemistry. I don't have the chemistry of a 20-year-old. I have the chemistry of a 53-year-old. I can't change it. So understand, I want to say this for several reasons. The chemistry matters. Right? If you're talking to a depressed person, you know their chemistry is not the same as yours. When you try to logic with them, it's not going to work. Why? Because they're working at a serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine deficit. Okay? One of those is not right in their system. And so that creates, when you talk to them, you say, well, just get up and go. Just feel better. That doesn't make sense. And as a church, we can't say, well, it's their own fault. They're... No. We've got to love them to the place where they're going to be. So I'm, I'm just going to talk about meds for a second here. So if that's the case, right? By the way, with anxiety, think about the sympathetic nervous system. I'm not going to give a, a science class right now, but anxiety is your sympathetic nervous system overreacting. And so when we're talking about anxiety and meds and all that kind of stuff, all we're asking, I, I'm not for meds and I'm not against meds. I'm not pro-med. I'm not, oh, we need to drug everybody up and I'm not, we should never give it. Here's my standard, and again, you can tune me out now if you want to, and it's okay, is all I would think about meds is, is first, let's not call it a spiritual problem, right? Let's not say, well, you need meds, you got a spiritual problem. Love Jesus better. Eh, really? Because when I was punching the doctor, I wasn't really thinking about Jesus in that moment, right? I was thinking that this guy's trying to kill me. Even playing field is all I'm asking for. So if you have a serotonin deficit and we tell people you should not take serotonin because it's not godly somehow, how is that love? That's not. Right? If we have a kids who are ADHD, by the way, I agree with you. Our kids are way too over-medicated. I'm not fighting with you on that. But if you have a kid who's legit ADHD, which means they cannot focus, and what we tell that kid is, is hey, sit in school for seven hours, right? You guys have been here for 35 minutes. You're ready to go, right? Seven hours, Sit still. But we're not going to give you the tools to do it. The other kids get the tools, but you don't. Sorry, frontal lobe for you, not going to work. Why? Because it's sinful for us to make your frontal lobe work. Ludicrous, right? All I'm saying is even playing field, right? That's all I'm asking. So you can agree or disagree with me, right? Uh, Some of the things that we're talking about we know for fact are, are chemical, right? schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, ADHD. If we're going to deny those people medications, I don't think that's love. But again, that's, that's just my opinion. I'll be outside. You can fight with me outside, okay? So I would like to make that point with you. I'm, I'm already on the negative on the time, and I get that. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not. But if we had time, I would have you each tell each other one of the best days of your life right now. 
I'd say, hey, take three minutes, tell each other the best days of your life. Guess what would happen to you? You would feel what you felt on that good day. I'd tell about my wedding day. Ooh, my wife coming down the aisle. Yes, all my friends were there. We're doing the Macarena, right? If you remember that. You start to tell that story, and guess what? Your chemistry changes. You change it, right? And, and we start to think the power of chemistry. And when chemistry gets bad, we can't just snap our fingers and say, you need to pray harder, have more faith, and fix it. That's, that's my point. Mental illness is a mystery, and it's different for every person. That's the next point, is mental illness is different for every person. Someone who gets depressed, for me, I want a Persian donut, right? I want to eat. Ah, give me some sugar. Ah. I have a sibling. If she gets depressed, she won't eat for a week, right? Sleeping. Some people who are depressed sleep all the time. Some people who are depressed can't sleep at all. You see, humans are such unique creatures. When we get involved in this chemistry thing that goes on with mental illness, we don't know how we're going to react. And what does that mean to us as a church? It means we've got to love no matter what. Are they sleeping a lot? Love them. Are they not sleeping at all? Love them. That's the call. Mental illness does not discriminate. doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter what your gender is. Right? doesn't matter. It does not discriminate. Rich, poor, male, female, whatever race you are. Right? You're not immune. By the way, I just want to make a comment to those who have not been touched by mental illness. This is hardest for you. Right? Families that are touched by mental illness get what I'm saying. But if you have not been touched by it, right, grace should be our, 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 where, where we're at. Right? Thank God you haven't been touched by it because it affects everyone around. So what do we do as a church? Hmm. Rocket science, right? Don't be Job's friends, right? Don't do that. Live in the mystery. Say, I don't get what's going on with you, but I'm going to walk alongside of you. Here's the words I want you to remember. I didn't put them on a slide. Present presence. That's what people need from us. Present presence. I learned this when I became a pastor at WCC, and I had to go to funerals, right? And you guys can see, I, go, I talk, right? And the other pastors said, will you shut your mouth, Right? They don't need to hear what you got to say today. They need your presence. And it was such wise counsel for me. If you don't know what's going on with a person who has mental illness, it's okay. Be present. Right? Don't run away from them. Don't act like they're broken. Right? Don't act like you're going to catch it from them. Be present. Right? In the moment and be with them. That's what present presence means. Live in the mystery. A couple verses I want to share and we'll be done. How should we respond? I'm going to say to you, watch your words. Like a lot of times we might say, hey, this is God's will. And I would say, don't say that. Here's why. You don't know God's will. I don't know God's will. We can guess, right? But to say it's God's will that you get a life of depression to my friend, yikes, right? It's going to get better. You don't know that. You don't know that. Some people, it's their whole life battle. So watch your words, because even though if you're saying, hey, you need to pray more, you need to have more faith, you, you might be saying right things that can't be heard. And so we need to engage in loving behaviors that allow us to do that. Here's a verse that I just want to share. 
Matthew 12, 36 and 7. This is about watch your words. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account of the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Be careful. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. The last verse I want to share is Romans 12, 9 through 11. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Hope for what? Hope for better. We want things to be better. I had a, a, a pastor tell me last week, or a pastor in training tell me, I don't think we should counsel people because suffering is good. Dude, we had a conversation, right? Let's have a conversation, right? We're going to fix the broken arm, right? Oh, I'll just leave that thing dangling. It'll be all right. Suffering, it's good for Jesus. No. Hope. Hope for something better. Hope to be connected even though they're feeling broken. Be patient in tribulation. So mental illness can be a long journey, and it affects not just the person with mental illness, but their family, and they all need ministered to. And as a church, we should be saying, how can we reach out to these people? Right? How can we care for them? And so what if we do it wrong? Right? So what if we, if we give the guy in the street money and he was going to go use it for alcohol? Right? God's just saying, did you do what I told you to do? Listen to the Holy Spirit and love. Be patient in tribulation. And finally, be consistent in prayer. Right? And I'm going to say this. Pray for yourself. God, help me love well. Holy Spirit, let me know what to say. Let me know what, to say, what not to say. And then pray for the other. God, lift this from them if, it's your, if, if you're willing to do that. But we want to pray. I want to close and I want to, I want to read a a text response from a person who's, who's dealt with mental illness in her family and, and, and much of her life. <clears throat> this is powerful. One thing that stayed strong in my mind and my life is the Christians who never shoved the spiritual down my throat but took care of me spiritually. I thought that was so insightful. People of all levels of mental illness do not always have the strength or the capacity to believe in something that's not tangible in the moment. As a church, we tend to isolate, reject, and silence the subject of mental illness. We are normal people with genetic, biological, or environmental, or sometimes a combination of all of them. Prescribing more faith and prayer is sometimes unbearable as a demand. I feel it's our job to do the praying and to give them the tangible things they can understand and see. Love, understanding, a meal, an ear. Right? As a church, we need to walk beside them as they go through it. So much power there. Church, we're called to love. No stigma, right? No prejudgment of people, right? But to love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for loving us. God, thank you for uh, your example of Job. God, help us to love others well, regardless of, of where they are. In Jesus' name, amen.